You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, church family. Northway, happy new year. We doing all right? Okay, okay. It's a new year. In some ways, you know, I know as we come in this room, there are many of us that probably have a lot of excitement about 2021 as opposed to 2020, hoping and longing for that this would be a much better year than what we saw this past year. But I think the reality that we should be aware of is that our true hope cannot be found in a digit change on a calendar. I mean, truthfully, we know coming into this room, honestly, there is no promise 2021 is going to be any different than 2020, though we are hopeful. But the reality is, is as followers of Christ, we know that our hope is ultimately not rooted in a digit change on a calendar. It's not rooted in a presidential inauguration. It's not rooted even in a vaccine. It's not rooted in a new relationship or a new diet this year. It's not even rooted in the Dallas Cowboys. God help us. Why do you want to put your hope there? You don't want to put your hope there. There's too too much finiteness and, and it's too temporary to last. We come into this room this morning as followers of Jesus Christ, confident in the hope that what we need, the new life we need is found in Jesus Christ. The one who has the ability to bring dead things to life and sustain them for all eternity. And that is the hope we're looking at here this morning as we continue in our study in the book of Romans. And so if you have a Bible with you, I would love to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter six. If you're a guest joining us, first time here at Northway, if you've come here this morning, because man, honestly, you are, you're just hopeful for a new year and maybe this is the time to get back in church. I just want to assure you right now, your presence here this morning does not automatically guarantee you new hope for the next year. It is the trust in Jesus Christ that we're going to point you to here this morning. That's where our hope is. That's where our joy is. And we're going to see this in a profound passage here in Romans chapter 6. It's all about new life. Now, if you've been following with us in uh, the book of Romans here, our study began last fall. And uh, what we are doing in the book of Romans, the book of Romans is all about the gift of God's salvation to redeem a sinner from death to life. Like it's all about the good news of Jesus Christ, what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. This good news, as we talked about before, is pictured in Romans like a diamond, this beautiful, splendid diamond that's gorgeous of this good news of Jesus Christ. And every chapter in the book of Romans is simply turning a facet on that diamond, showing you another angle from this this beauty of what God has given us in Jesus Christ. But as we talk about the good news, before you can understand what the good news of Jesus Christ is, you have to understand the bad news that has affected all of us. And that's where Romans began. In chapter one through chapter three, verse 20, was really all about the bad news. It was this dark side of this facet that's being turned for us, showing us that in God's design to create us for intimacy and relationship with him, that that brings glory to his name and the ultimate good for humanity, we rebelled against that, that God. We rebelled against his righteousness. We rebelled against his decrees and a curse set in on the earth that has separated us from God. And what Paul did in Romans chapter one is just simply show the evidence of why it is we don't possess the righteousness that we need in order to stand in the presence of a holy and just God. 
and that's exposed first in the Gentile who in the face of all that's obvious about God in the creation around us and in the conscience within us, we have chosen to suppress that truth, to push it down and exchange that truth with a lie and worship the creation over the creator that exposes our unrighteousness and our just condemnation before God. And then Paul turned in chapter two to the, to the Jew, to the religious, from the irreligious to the religious, showing that those of us who even have, think we have this relationship with God, really it's a relationship with ourselves as we try, to, we try to prove our own works to try to earn the favor of God. And that's ultimately what all other religion is, is man trying to work his way to God, that if I just have enough morality or if I just have enough of my own good deeds and works in this life, then that will, that'll merit the favor of God. And Paul shows why that that falls woefully short of the righteousness that God desires and has designed for each of us. And that too exposes our own guilt and we stand, we stand condemned before a holy God. And so you have this dark news, but then we get to chapter three, verse 21, and the good news enters in. The fact that God has found a way, he has found a way to give us a righteousness that we can never earn on our own to reconcile us back to himself, to secure our salvation forever. And it's through the gift of Jesus Christ who came embodying the righteousness that we fell short of and then died on a cross so that he could pay the payment that our sin and our rebellion towards God demanded, which was death, and he took it for us. And by transferring our faith from ourselves to God, that we can receive his forgiveness that's been met at the cross and satisfied at the cross. And then we can be adopted and reconciled to this God and intimacy with him and experience his joy and be secured in that forever. In fact, that's where all the way in chapter four, illustrated through the story of Abraham in the Old Testament, that it was his faith in God's promise that gave him the righteousness he couldn't earn or deserve. And then it shows us in chapter five that once you have put your faith, once you've been justified, declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ, that salvation is secured forever and can never be taken away. You are secure in him through the blood of Christ. Like that's what we've covered, the gospel that saves chapters one through five. And what Paul's gonna do now is he's gonna call a timeout in chapter six. And we're going to move to the second part in the book of Romans, not just the gospel that saves, but the gospel that sanctifies. Sanctify is a big fancy word that means to set apart. In other words, there's a question that's going to be assumed. Whenever you teach on the doctrine of eternal security, that once you've been saved in Christ, you can never lose your salvation, there is a question coming from a mile away, and you can just see it. Romans 6 is going to deal with it. And that is, okay, so you're saying all I have to do is believe in Jesus my sins can be forgiven. And so that means I can just basically grab my hell insurance and then I can just go live however I want, no matter what I do, that salvation will never be taken away. Like, is that what's going on here? That once saved, always saved. And so therefore, the more I sin in this life, that means the more grace and the more mercy God will pour out for me through Jesus. So I just sin all I want. And Paul's gonna, oh no, you don't, you don't understand the gospel. That's not what the gospel does. The same gospel that, that forgives you is also the same gospel that transforms you and will change you into a new creation. See, this idea of receiving your hell insurance, walking an aisle, praying a prayer, grab my hell insurance and go back to the life I once had is found nowhere in the scripture. And in fact, that idea 
was the greatest fear that Rome had with this new sect of Judaism called Christianity. They feared that this gospel of grace would lead to antinomianism. Nomos means law, anti-law, that you, you would go against the law. That you take a people who all of a sudden have had all their sins canceled out. They're free. They're secure in their salvation. There's no fear of hell ever again. Then they're going to take that grace and they're going to use it for evil. They're going to become the most unruly people. They'll be the worst citizens. And you'll experience a weak society that breaks down this antinomian lifestyle that will come out of this free grace life, this uh, free grace ideology that one has bought into. And this, this feared Rome, that you would usurp the Roman government, that you would use your grace and actually overthrow the government. And this was a great fear of theirs. And so Paul writes to speak to this issue. In Romans chapter 6, and all the way through Romans chapter 7, Paul again calls this time out from talking about justification by faith so that he can deal with the issue of sanctification. What does the gospel produce in the life of a Christian? Does the gospel just simply free you up to sin all the more? Or does the gospel actually change you? And y'all, this little section here is so significant, so important in the Christian faith. This idea of being anti-law or going and sinning all you want, you know, this is rebutted all throughout the New Testament. Not only here in Romans 6, but Galatians 2, Galatians 5, 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, the book of Jude, they're all going to deal with this issue. Even Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Even Jesus was accused of being antinomian. Uh, same with Stephen. At Stephen's execution, he was accused of blaspheming Moses. Even he was misinterpreted as an antinomian. And so let me, let me get you to understand this. When you're going to preach the doctrine of grace that saves and secures, you better get ready because they're coming after you. The legalists are going to come after you because this is the question that they're going to have. And let me tell you, if they're not coming after you, you might check the gospel that you've been preaching. It might not be fueled with enough grace. The truth is no legalist denominations have ever been challenged on this because they've got clauses in their doctrines that provide a way for a Christian to become unsaved and go back to remaining under the law. Salvation for a legalist is simply a divine assist. God kind of gets the ball to the net. You got to carry it home. And if you don't, you better watch out. And so all of a sudden, it's either full legalism or it's, it's antinomianism. And I'm, I'm just licentious and I can go rebel all I want and God's not going to do anything about it. Paul is going to show here that grace doesn't lead you away from the law. It simply gives you freedom and motivation and a new power to obey it in a way that you could not apart from Jesus Christ. Incidentally, on the other side of this, for those who do think that, man, I can just walk an aisle, pray a prayer, grab a hell insurance, go live all I want, that, by the way, is the chief hallmark of a cult. Almost every cult out there, and I think we've got a few here in Texas that we are familiar with, they promise freedom. They'll take the forgiveness of Christ, but they won't take the new life of Christ. They become slaves of corruption. The question is, will grace and security lead to more sin? Will the Christian use grace as an excuse for evil? The fact is, there better be a way that God can constitutionally and effectually transform the inside of a Christian to not just to be declared righteous, but to actually embody that righteousness. Or else justification by faith 
will be like giving an unconditional pardon to a bunch of felons. God better find a way, and the fact is, he has. So y'all hang with us here these next several weeks as we head through this spring. We're going to see how the gospel not only saves, but the gospel also sets you apart. It sanctifies. Starting in chapter 6, Paul is going to begin asking seven rhetorical questions. We'll see four of them today. And uh, that most commonly get asked when dealing with the doctrine of eternal security and transformation. Here's the first one. Again, we see this coming a mile away. What shall we say then, Paul says? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Meaning if I am secure in Christ, that means the more I sin, the more God forgives. That's true. The more I experience his grace and mercy, even in my sin, absolutely. So shouldn't I then just sin all the more so that more grace may come of it? Now, Paul answers emphatically in verse 2. By no means. We saw that before early on in Romans. That's a famous phrase in Greek. It's one of the most emphatic phrases in Greek. The word meganoito, which literally we would translate in Texan, heck no. Heck no, that's not what that means. And so Paul answers this question like a good lawyer by asking another question. When he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now there it's a phrase that is going to become a Pauline phrase. In sin, in grace. We're going to look at this in more detail next week, but this is a Pauline phrase that he uses here. We're going to have to deal with what does being dead to sin actually mean? For some, they'll take it as, I will sin no more. And some of these folks you've encountered on your college campus in your free speech area at times who love to show up proclaiming how since they put their faith in Jesus, they no longer sin anymore like the rest of you. And uh, that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what is being described here in Romans chapter. That is not what dead to sin means. What Paul is essentially saying, and again, we'll break this down more next week, but the Christian in their salvation is now going to have a reorientation towards their sin, an awakening to a new life with a new heart and new desires. Something has ontologically changed in one's identity. Uh, the study of ontology is the study of being. Something about your being, the very essence of who you are, is what the gospel actually changes into a new identity. A chrysalis takes place when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And when a, when a caterpillar goes through a chrysalis to turn into a butterfly, can that butterfly ever go back and be a caterpillar again? It cannot. A metamorphosis has changed taken place. A chrysalis has taken place. The old is gone. The new has come. Now, can that caterpillar, can that butterfly go back and hang out with caterpillars? Absolutely. But can it be a caterpillar? Never again. And in the same way, this is what has happened to us. As we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, a transformation takes place on the other side of conversion, on the other side of the cross that will forever change our life. Now, is this transformation. Does it happen overnight? No. Starting at the moment of salvation, this is what will be called progressive sanctification. Meaning from the moment I put my faith in Jesus, I am reborn. And there will be 
a transformation that will take place progressively, further and further setting me apart from the old life that I once knew, slowly but surely conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ until one day this body will die and I will be taken home and receive a brand new body by the Lord Jesus Christ, finishing that transformation once and for all, where we will taste no sin ever again. Now, for some people, that process is a little slower than others. Other folks, it's radical. And I've seen both take place in my experience as a Christian. But what Paul is saying here is that whatever dead to sin is, it doesn't mean you don't sin anymore. No, sin is still going to be a struggle for a believer. Paul's going to deal with that in Romans chapter 7. That sin is still present, it's still entangling, but there is a chrysalis that's taking place that brings us into a transformation of new life. Paul is simply dealing here with a misnomer that has ravaged the Southern Bible Belt for years that claims I can simply walk an aisle, pray a canned prayer of cognitive intellectual assent about believing in Jesus that is no different than me believing in Abraham Lincoln, that he simply existed, but I'm not going to trust him for anything, grab my hell insurance, and then go live no different than I was before I walked that aisle. And Paul's going to say, if that is your claim, that Jesus is your Savior, and you claim that with your lips, but then you exhibit for the rest of your life continued unrepentant sin with no conscience, no conviction whatsoever, and he's going to say that, that that is not exhibiting the gospel that you have been saved into. That is simply giving lip service or intellectual assent that has not changed you ontologically, as the gospel proves to do. It's also, it's not just Paul's theology here. This is John's theology. 1 John 4.20, John says, if anybody says that they love God, and then you go on for the rest of your life and you hate your brother, then you're a liar. You don't really love God. Because what God does is transform you into a heart of stone, to a heart of love. James's theology was also no different. James 2.17, faith without works that show for that faith is a dead faith. He's not saying works earn your salvation, but he is saying they do prove it. There is a transformation that takes place. And if you have no evidence to say it, then all you've been given is lip service. You've been writing checks with your mouth that your life has not cashed. The true gospel changes you. Now, Paul's going to say in verse 3, let me explain really what I mean here by dead to sin. He says in verse 3, do you not know? In other words, we need to get your doctrine of salvation straight right here. There are two sides to the cross that are going to apply to your life that you need to understand. There is a necessary death and resurrection that are both exhibited in a believer when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And you cannot have one without the other. Read this, the end of verse 3. He says, do you not know that all of us, not just some of us, this is every Christian, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. This is the first side of the application of the gospel that we experience is a death that takes place. And by the way, don't get confused here by baptism. I know when we think baptism, we think water baptism. That's what we're going to see here in just a little bit. All that is is a metaphor for what Paul's actually talking about really takes place right here. The word baptism means to be placed into 
to be immersed in, to be identified with. This is what every Christian is when they put their trust in Jesus Christ. They are placed into Jesus. You are placed into his reality. And his reality on the cross has two sides. One is a death, one is a life. And so the first aspect of Christ's work on the cross is that we are immersed into his death. Christ's death was his payment for our sins. Being placed into Christ means you are identified with that death. Meaning, number one, we accept his sacrifice in our place, on our behalf, as the payment that brought about the forgiveness of our sin and reconciliation to God. We accept that by identifying with that. But secondly, it also means there's a death involved with us as well. And not just a physical death for Jesus, a martyrdom. No, even in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, whoever wants to come after me must pick up his cross daily. We're not talking about physical death here. There is a spiritual death that happens for us when we are identified with Jesus. The old identity that we had in sin, the old ways of living that glorified that sin, its power over us that compelled us to sin has all been put to death. It has been dethroned in our lives. Its presence is still there, but its power has been defeated. You are no longer who you used to be because a death has occurred. But just like in the symbol of water baptism, there's a reason when we baptize people, we don't just put them under water and leave them under there and go ahead and send them on home to glory, right? Because there's another side to the cross, isn't there? There is a resurrection that takes place, a newness of life that one has been raised to in Jesus Christ. You see this at the end of verse four, that we are buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Listen to this, in order that... This death has to come about so that the next thing can happen. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When Christ came up out of that grave, we came up out of that grave. As a new creation, with a new power, indwelt by the Holy Spirit who now dwells within us, enabling us to walk in a path of righteousness that we could not walk on our own before. This is what the resurrection has done. Many people love to just take the forgiveness of Christ that came through his death, but will not accept the, the newness of life that comes through his resurrection. But Paul says, that's not the salvation you received. You don't just get one, you got both when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can't just take the death of Christ without the, the resurrection of Christ, and you can't take the forgiveness of Christ without the newness of life and transformation that comes with it. By the way, the Greek word there for newness in verse four doesn't just mean a second chance at your old life. It actually means a brand new, distinct life, totally different than the one you had before. A new identity has taken place. That's why Paul said in Galatians chapter two, when he wrote to the Galatians, for I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, it's a new one. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. A death has taken place and a resurrection has taken place in my life. The reason true believers in Christ can't just walk the aisle, pray the prayer, grab hell insurance, and then keep living however they want the rest of their life is because true identification in Christ's work on the cross produces the birth of a new heart, a new motivation, a new power. You will struggle with sin, but you will not struggle with it in the same way if Christ is truly in you. 
This is the same thing that Nicodemus in his conversation with Jesus were talking about. Man, how can I be saved? Jesus says, you gotta be born again. Remember, Nicodemus thought that was physical. Do I need to go back in my mom's womb? I can't do that. I can't be reborn again. He wasn't talking about the physical. He's talking about the spiritual. Having this chrysalis take place that has come through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know, by the way, this whole idea of the forgiveness of Christ through the death of Christ, also accompanied by the new life of Christ in the resurrection of Christ? Do you know this is not some new idea from Paul? This was actually prophesied and promised over 600 years before Paul wrote these words. Hold hold your place there in Romans 6. Flip to your left with me and go to Jeremiah chapter 31. I want you to see this. Jeremiah chapter 31, Israel is going into bondage because of their sin, being enslaved, held captive. They're judged. They're cursed because of their idolatry. And all seems hopeless, darkness, despair, gloom over the land. And yet God sends the prophet Jeremiah for 40 years to preach the people to repent because there is a new day coming where God is going to do something new that he has not done before. And you see what this is, starting in verse 31. I want you to see what the promise of the new covenant does here. First of all, he says in verse 31, behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There is a new covenant that's going to be established by God with man. And here's what it will entail. It's not going to be like the old one, the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, by the way, that they broke even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. In other words, there's a new covenant coming. It will not be like the old one. The old one was obey my law and you'll be blessed. Disobey my law law, and you'll be cursed. And it's the reason why Israel was constantly judged because they could not obey the law. They were constantly rebelling, constantly falling into their sin. And God kept judging them, kept judging them. But he says there's a new day coming when that will not be the case. What is entailed in this new covenant? There are two aspects to it. I want you to see these here. Verse 33, here's the first one. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, where? Within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. To write the law on your heart means that he's going to internalize his law within you. It'll no longer be these Ten Commandments on stones that you're looking at going, how am I going to do those? There's no way. Now he's going to put them within you. So no longer is God's law a have to, it's a want to. It's not a have to, it's a get to. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to internalize this. And if, when, you, when you don't obey, you're going to feel convicted. You're going to repent. That is within you. And he says, when he says, I will be their God and they will be my people, don't pass over that. Don't trivialize that statement. That is a biblical idiom that's used over and over in the Old Testament to describe a relationship in which there is a obedience in that relationship driven out of 
out of delight, not duty. In my marriage, my wife and I serve one another. We, we want to serve the covenant that we have made between one another. And I can tell you that is not simply just a duty that I have to become a martyr for. We want to. It's written in our hearts. My wife, when I get home, I kiss her, not because I have to. I want to. And God says, I'm going to do this in this relationship with you in this future day. You're going to want to. It's going to change everything. Now, is, is anything in verse 31 through 33 a command? No. It's all a fact. God says, this is what I'm going to do in that day. I'm going to give you a heartfelt obedience from the inside out. And at the end of verse 34, notice a second aspect that will come as the result of this new covenant. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord. They're all going to know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That's that intimacy. And listen what they're going to receive. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What else will we receive from this new covenant? Not just heartfelt obedience, but forgiveness, cleansing, righteousness. Now, which of these two elements do we tend to camp on more in Christianity? We tend to camp on the forgiveness side. We love that one. Oh, a God who will just forgive me and not hold my sins against me? I'll take that all day. Oh, but actually walking forward in righteousness, compelled to serve my king, to to deny myself, pick up my cross, and follow him the rest of my life. Ah, that's too much. I don't want that. Just give me the forgiveness. We'll preach on that all day. But understand, at no point in this new covenant promise is one separated from the other. You don't get one without the other. You have both. Now, with that in mind, go back to Romans 6. Back to Romans 6 here, because all Paul is doing in Romans 6 is echoing the essence of Jeremiah 31. This is the fruit of the new covenant that's been founded in Jesus Christ. And our pursuit of righteousness is not what makes us a Christian. It's simply evidencing the fact that we are. A death and a resurrection have taken place and they go hand in hand. And in verse five, Paul will conclude, we'll wrap up here. Paul will conclude this thought with an illustration. Listen to what he says here. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, then certainly... Not maybe, certainly we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. That word united that's used both times there is a botanical term in the Greek. It could also be translated grafted, as you would taking a tree that isn't growing good fruit and you can break off a branch and you can graft it into a tree that is producing good fruit and that formerly dead one will take on the life of the new host and now bear good fruit. When I lived in Fresno for about seven years, I learned a lot about this. Uh, by the way, I don't know if you even know, but the Central Valley of California produces 75% of all produce in America. You go to the store next time, go to the grocery store, go grab you some raspberries, some blueberries, whatever you want. Look on there, you'll see a little where it came from, and it's a little town in Central California. It's where they grow all the produce, and they have come up with ingenious ways to produce fruit by grafting. They can take four different fruit trees and graft them together so you can grow four different fruits on one tree. It's crazy. I was eating stuff I didn't even know existed 
that was there in Calvary. It's crazy what, what can be done there, but you can take something that was dying, graft it in, and it takes on the life of the new host and now bears fruit that it couldn't produce on its own. That is exactly what has happened when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. You are sown into him, into the life of Christ. And what's true of him is true of you. And so Paul says, you've been united with him. You've been grafted in. And so, so many people have the misconception that Christianity is just the adoption of a new belief system. It's just following the teachings of Jesus and kind of muscling your way through it and grinding it out and be a little bit better than you are bad. And that's just so many people put that. And that's, that's why we put Christianity on the same level as other religions that just as Islam is following the teachings of Muhammad and Buddhism is following the teachings of Gautama. And so therefore Christianity is just following the teachings of Jesus. And that's all it is. And so it's no wonder why we'll just cheapen the gospel to make it be walk this aisle, pray a canned prayer, have an intellectual sent to Jesus, and then just continue living how you want. Paul is showing us right here, that's not the gospel. The gospel here is that the death and resurrection of Jesus, it isn't just intellectual, it's ontological. It changes your identity. It changes your being. We who were once dead have now been grafted into his new life and we can't help but produce fruit. You cannot have the death of Christ without the new life of Christ, nor can you have the life of Christ without the death of Christ. And when you have transferred your trust from your own works to solely resting upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, not only do you receive a declaration of righteousness that secures you forever, but you also receive the power to walk in that righteousness. Progressively transforming your life, everything of who you are, into the image of Jesus Christ. More and more, day by day, until he takes you home where he comes again and makes all things new, thereby finishing that process once and for all. Now, the big question that's left us is how? Okay, that's great. I'm in. I want both. But how? If this is true, how can I see this realized more in my life then? Why do I still struggle like I do? How can I say no to my flesh in this new life to experience more of Christ in me? I'm so glad you asked. You're going to have to come back next week because that's where we're going to answer that question. Next week, we're going to look at a story of two kingdoms. We are going to look at the land you formerly lived in, sin country. And then we're going to look at the land that you've been grafted into, that you are a new citizen of, Graceland, where the king lives, and it ain't Elvis. You're going to see that and what that transformation looks, looks like in the life of a believer. In the meantime, can I just plead with you? If you have come into this room this morning and you're hoping that just showing up at church checks a box for you, to give you hope on a new year after a horrible one we just went through. I'm gonna tell you, you're just being here this morning, you're just going through religious motions, doesn't offer you anything. But what we can point you to is the one who can transform everything for you, who may not give you a new 2021, but can give you a new you. And that is Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him. Quit settling for lesser saviors that are no saviors at all. Put your trust in the one Savior that God promised through his conquering death and resurrection on the cross can give for you the new life that you have always longed for. And even if your 2021 doesn't change, 
what you will receive is a sustaining joy that comes from the Holy Spirit within you that will carry you through and hold you up in the worst of storms to come.